You probably know the moment. It's almost cliched at this point. That movie moment where the character has lost their way. You know, they've they've forgotten who they are, and because of that, they're struggling with that which they were always able to do so well. Uh, and in order to fix it, someone, some wise, uh, learned friend tells them you got to get back to basics. You got to discover what got you here in the first place. You got to discover what made people love you. What what made you succeed? You got to go back to that core foundation, re-find it, be, you know, be re-energized and excited by it once more. And because of that, you'll then be able to succeed, even though the context now is different, even though the, the world you are in has changed. Uh, by recovering that uh, and assessing it anew with all that you've learned, you'll be better and stronger and faster and whatever, whatever, whatever. On and on and on. I spoke with Jeff Thompson. He is the coordinator of studies, uh, systematic theology at Pilgrim Theological College about his book, In His Own Strange Way, a post-Christendom sort of commentary on the basis of union. The basis of union is the founding theological document uh, for the Uniting Church in Australia. And so it is a, you know, this is a kind of a sense of in the changing context in the church faced with new challenges, new contexts, uh, new opportunities, there is this sense of looking again at that which we uh, find our foundation, looking again at that which shapes us and uh, directs us, uh, not just to slavishly hold to the past, but to be informed and to be challenged and to be provoked uh, by this most excellent of theological documents. And Jeff's book explores the various uh, theological claims, it explores the context, it explores the possibilities that come from a renewed engagement with the basis of union. So please welcome Jeff Thompson, a return guest to Love, Rinse, Repeat. And uh, yeah, get your hands together as we talk about in his own strange way. Well, Jeff Thompson, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Thank you, Liam. Good to be back here again. Yes, yes, back again. So today we're talking about your new book, In His Own Strange Way, which is a, uh, as you say, a sort of commentary, a sort of post-Christendom commentary on the basis of union, the, the founding document of the United, founding theological document of the United Church. Uh, now, you've obviously worked with the basis of union a bunch now, and you've written on it in various uh, mediums before. Uh, what... What led to this book and, you know, what were you hoping particularly with this project to achieve? Uh, well, I think probably an awareness that a lot of what I'd written was mostly in academic mode, uh, which is is fine, and I think there was a, a need to be writing about the basis in, in that mode. Hmm. But uh, I felt that there was a lot of the... Uh, there were a lot of the issues that I was wrestling with that warranted some... Uh, engagement at a less academic mode, a more popular mode. Um, so I thought it was timely to um, put together a commentary, I guess because I, although I'd not ever set out to uh, write something on every paragraph, the way I had in fact engaged the basis over the, the last decade or so meant that I had developed ideas about most of the paragraphs um, in the basis. So it seemed as if my uh, what I perceived to be a need and what, what I've been writing came together um, was something like a, a sort of commentary. That's great. And, and as, you, as, you, as you see in the book, like there's, 
you know, at the end of each chapter, like some brief summaries, some questions for consideration, some uh, prompts for further biblical reflection. So it's very much as you say, uh, designed for individuals or groups to read in their in their local churches. Sure, and that, that's another reason too. Uh, my sense with the work I've been doing over the last decade, and particularly going out into um, workshops and uh, lay education forums discovering that once people actually are exposed to the basis, they get quite interested in it mm. and an awareness that perhaps there was a, a renewal of interest in the basis of union, I think partly a result of our age as a church, mm. that we've got to the point now where people want to ask, well, okay, how, how did we come to be? Uh, we've got a lot of people, I, I don't know what the, the stats would be, but there'd be a very significant proportion of the United Church membership now who either were not born as the union or who have in fact joined union uh, joined the united church after union mm, yes no 100 percent um so before we get to the basis itself uh let's talk about one of those words in that subtitle that post-christendom mm. um because i mean we've, you've worked in this area before and i think it's always important for us to note as we start to talk about this that that australia's christendom and post-christendom is quite different to yeah to other contexts and to what the word is often used to describe even in Australia. So could you just sure. give us a little hint just so, so we all are on the same page going forward. Uh, yeah, what is kind of, you know, what are you referencing and referring to when you talk about both, I guess, Australia's Christendom and now it's post-Christendom context? Sure. Look, I think it's one of those terms that can be uh, interpreted, defined in all sorts of ways. I guess the usual, um, the usual definition is a reference to that culture of European or European culture that was in which the integration of the institutions, authorities, um, texts, etc., of that culture were defined by Christianity and where there was this merging of Christianity and culture that lasted for however long we want to think about it, 1,000 years, 1,500 years, whatever. So, I mean, I, I think even on that more general sense, it can actually be um, interpreted fairly broadly. And so post-Christendom, therefore, is that culture that has moved beyond that, where those alliances have broken down. And so something, a culture is emerging that is not defined by Christianity. And I think that is what is happening and been happening now for you know, well over a century in, in Europe. I think in Australia, to say we ever had the kind of Christendom that we might identify with Europe stretching it, um, for two reasons. One, um, Indigenous Australia, of course, never had that, that cultural uh, engagement with Christianity until white settlement. And even the Christianity that came with white settlement was, in fact, already, if you like, a post-Christendom Christianity. Uh, it was already shaped at least by the European Enlightenment. So there was always, I think, a fundamental suspicion towards Christianity within um, post-white post settlement Australia. But to the extent that the church itself or churches themselves thought that they were inhabiting a culture of Christendom, I think that that's really limited to a, a few decades in the second half of the 20th century, probably the 50s, 60s, and maybe stretching into the 70s, when there was a growth uh, in middle-class Christianity in urban and regional areas where uh, being part of the church uh, could basically 
um, provide all the structures and frameworks for your life. Now, I'm not sure that it ever was the fact that Christianity was the dominant institution in the in the culture or the churches were the dominant institutions, but for those who inhabited the churches, it was a very um, all-consuming culture. Mm. And I think when I talk about post-Christendom, I'm talking about something perhaps more for the church, churches, that we are in that era where the church itself no longer defines everything of who we are and what we do. Mm. So it's more for like, you know, the way we engage with the churches. Yes, we have our church involvement, but there's also now so much more, uh, both within our communities and our families and our workplaces that also, you know, shaping our identity is providing for our needs is uh, an expression of our talents. Like it, all, it can all come out in more ways than just through this one ecosystem. Sure. I, I, yeah, I think that puts it well. So, I mean, I think, oh, you think about, um, I mean, even I can remember, um, you know, into the, the 60s, I suppose, you know, the, the churches were where you had sports clubs, you had social events, um, churches ran dances, etc. Um, and and there was still this, um, this cultural remnant, I suppose, of Christendom, of the European-style Christendom, where church leaders had a well-defined role in the society. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all that that's gone. Yep, yep. So we'll get into the basis then with that in mind, that we're now engaging the basis in this new era, this new epoch. Uh, so we'll go to paragraph three, which, you know, as, as is often said, the basis within the basis. Uh, but you note immediately the kind of the gap that developed between, ex, between expectation and reality when it came to the engagement of the church, the Uniting Church, with the basis itself. Uh, and uh, you cite one kind of wondering or suggestion that came from Dean Drayton, uh, the idea of why did the UCA never make paragraph three a catechism to help kind of bridge that gap between maybe what those who are writing the document felt it should be and what it actually came to be in the, uh, in the churches. But before we get to that gap, you know, talking about paragraph three, why are you drawn to this paragraph? What, what excites you to engage with it? And, uh, and to maybe try to bridge that gap that has developed. What, what excites you about uh, the basis within the basis? Um, a number of things. Um, one, I think it is just, it is beautifully written. Um, it's just this, this beautifully composed summary of who Jesus was and how he was proclaimed by the first Christians and why he remains significant. So you've got the the basic claims of the Christian faith are there in a dramatic or narrative a narrative mode. Um, it's not burdened, and I, I use that word advisedly. It's not burdened with formulas or doctrinal slogans. Now, you know, I think there is a place for doctrinal formulas and slogans, perhaps uh, in the Christian faith, certainly, but they can become burdens if they're used in the wrong way. Whereas none of those sorts of distractions are there. There's just this story of Jesus in his life, death and resurrection and what it is that the church has believed that that life, death and resurrection was about. So it's it's just something very arresting and compelling. It's, it's written freely. It speaks, I think, much more to the imagination perhaps than it does specifically to the head or the cognitive dimensions of our um, our experience. Um, 
And the fact, I think, so there's one, that's one issue, but what drew me to it. I think the awareness as I began thinking more deeply about the basis of union and writing, uh, so reading what the, the authors had said about it was how much emphasis they placed on it. Um, you know, the, the phrase, the basis, it's the basis of the basis uh, comes from Darcy Wood, uh, one, of the, one of the authors and subsequently a president of the United Church. So the real, um, they really stressed this is, this is the centre of gravity. So that drew me to it as well. Okay, they thought this was really important. Um, so that was an invitation for me to actually delve into it a bit more deeply. So you started to touch on there the uh, the way this paragraph works to approach the significance of Jesus through appeals to like the drama of his life through and death and resurrection through the big story of the church and the cosmos. The way this is is narrative rather than say um, a list of propositions uh, or formulas. Uh, why do you think this might have been the approach? And I guess maybe more so for us, why might it be an asset for the church in this kind of postmodern, post-Christendom context, particularly maybe uh, over and against, or at least just against uh, the kind of way that often Jesus and the Bible are appealed to, um, almost devoid of narrative today? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's an interesting question. I mean, why, why did they come to articulate the foundation of the faith the way they did. I'm not really sure. I think, um, well, there are some hints about that. One is that they were already, the the, the writers of the basis were already determined not to um, bound or offer as the core of the church's understanding of the faith any kind of um, formula that might be um, partisan or that might separate it from the Uniting Church from, from other churches. So there was this, I think, a very deliberate attempt to say, well, what what is it that needs to be said about Jesus? And uh, also driven, I think, by an earlier commitment they made in their approach, in their method, that they had to be governed by the biblical witness. That's another reason that, that that this paragraph holds its attraction for me, is that it's very much couched in, in biblical terms and concepts, even though you, you almost don't realise that um, because it's constructed so well, but it's it sticks closely to the themes and concepts of, of the biblical presentation of Jesus. So that's a historical um, reason for uh, why it came to be. Why do I think it has attraction now? Well, in many ways for exactly those reasons, uh, that it's... Uh, I think we're living in a time where we have to ask, well, why tell the story of Jesus at all? Um, and there, there, there are reasons in terms of Christianity's changing place in the culture. I think um, new dimensions of Christianity are coming to the surface and we're forced to ask that question, well, why tell the story of Jesus? And I think this paragraph gives us an answer to that question but it, it does so in ways that go beyond simply saying, well, because Jesus is fully divine and fully human or that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity or because Jesus is um, my personal saviour. It's something richer than that. And, and what I think it also does, and which also makes it relevant and attractive and compelling in our current, current context, 
uh, is the way it it tells the story of Jesus alongside, well, no, I'll put it the other way. The story of the church, the story of Jesus, and the story of the cosmos are integrated together. They're, they're all held together in this paragraph in exactly the way that I think the New Testament does. Mm. So having heard that and, and having read, you know, your passion for this paragraph, how would you like to see the uh, the church engage with it more? Is it Should it become a catechism? Should it... Uh, should our songwriters take to it? I don't know. What? How does paragraph three uh, and this and its significance and its uh, power and, and arresting um, vitality uh, come to feed the church? Well, good question. Um, one probably becoming familiar with it. Mm. Uh, that would be one one way. Um, I think the. Um, the little creed that's I'm not ever, I'm not sure whoever wrote it, but it's "We are a pilgrim people," which is a, or a statement of faith. I suppose it's located in the Uniting Church Worship Resources. Uh, it it's got something of paragraph three in it. So I think every people again it depends how widely used that particular statement of faith is. But whenever people are saying that, they're actually drawing on some of the themes of paragraph three. Um, oh, look! I think um, you know why not have ministers conduct short series mm -hmm. of sermons on paragraph three around who is Jesus. Yep. That would be one way. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, people can do Bible studies on the book and then they'll read your cool. book in the commentary and that will work too. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, there's definitely ways. So that's good. Well, uh, we'll go to paragraph four then, and, and we're not going to go paragraph by paragraph. We, you know, People have got other things to do with their day, I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, but you, you come to the, in paragraph four, we come to the strange and peculiar way that, that Jesus went about his reconciling work and meets the church anew today. Uh, you write, the church has no life apart from Jesus Christ continually coming to the church as it proclaims the gospel about him. So it got me thinking this, this Christ coming as we proclaim. Uh, and we're thinking about the kind of the, the missionary movement of the church, this movement of the church to cross boundaries and cultures and, and time, uh, you know, to make this proclamation. Uh, yet when we think about this, this paragraph, the idea uh, that though we might, you know, come into a given situation with the gospel proclamation ready to be proclaimed, uh, Jesus might come to us in the form of those hearing, questioning and, and responding for the first time. And so it would mean that kind of the more we are open to the coming of Christ, uh, it, uh, we, if we are learning from and being shaped by those hearing the proclamation. So there's this kind of paradox in my view of, you know, we're meeting Jesus and receiving life from his presence when we proclaim the gospel, not because we had it tucked in our back pocket and brought it with us, um, but because of what happens in that encounter, uh, what the recipient of the proclamation contributes to the conversation. So that's how I... That's a trajectory I went off when I read on your, your work on paragraph four. Uh, did I get, you know, is that justified? Am I way off track? What are you thinking about this idea that Christ comes to us as we go, so he's there in the seat, not the giving? Well, I wish I had, I wish I had written something like that because I think that's a very, um, very valid trajectory. I'm not, I think you've taken it further than I had, and that's, that's great. Look, I, I think part of what is at stake in this affirmation of the strange way of Jesus Christ is the fact that he is elusive, mm -hmm. even to the church. 
that even as the church confesses him, we cannot contain him. Mm. And that even as the church proclaims what it's been called to proclaim, uh, it must be ready to uh, encounter him in new and strange ways. And I think the way you put it, that we actually, the church in its own proclamation and through the questions and responses and puzzles that the proclamation generates can freshly encounter Jesus Christ. So I, I think absolutely um, it's it's this permanent, the affirmation of Jesus' strangeness I think is um, a permanent reminder to us that we must be constantly alert to hearing who he is, seeing who he is um, in ways that actually challenge what we already believe. And I don't think any of that at all means that we dispense with the fundamental claims of the Christian, why we're even proclaiming him. Um, but I think it's that it it keeps us on our toes uh, to be ready to encounter him in new and strange ways. Mm. Because he is, after all, an exceptionally strange figure. Yes. There is nothing nothing in the New Testament witness to him that makes him a normal, conventional person. Uh, he, he shatters so many perceptions and expectations uh, through his teaching and his presence. And then the message that the first Christians proclaimed about him was equally um, groundbreaking, category shattering. Mm. So you know, we, we should, this is, it's, it's part of, the, it's part of what he is and who he is, is to be strange. Mm. And the moment we've lost that sense of his difference, then we've lost something of who he is. I think that's really important. And, and we're, we're recording this in Holy Week. Uh, and it's very important as you go into your Easter sermons, where I think sometimes ministers can be, well, we're getting guests in. And, and so I've been in Easter sermons where so much of it is, it's actually not that strange. Or it's actually not that irrational to believe yeah. these, these claims of Christianity. I'm like, oh, no, it, it is. Like, um, and we should lean into that, actually. <laughs> like, yeah, um, it's entirely bewildering mm. uh, that, that even those who were closest to him and kept hearing him tell them exactly what was going to happen, mm. uh, or sometimes not, he doesn't always, but like they, they couldn't grasp it. So what yeah. should be so easily graspable for someone who walks into the... Absolutely. The and the striking thing for me is that the biblical writer, the gospel writers, and I suppose especially especially Mark, are, um, make keep that part of the memory. Mm. They don't they don't obscure the fact that they found Jesus difficult to understand. You know that that puzzle is is kept part of the message. Mm. Yeah, that's nice. So talking about the Bible, uh, in your chapter of the Bible, you're you're really kind of encouraging the church to go back to kind of the fundamental questions: the the what, the why, and the where. Uh, now we're not giving away the farm, so so you don't need to share your, your 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 answers to those questions. But why do you think those are the questions we need to ask? Why why are we going back to these kind of this this basic, you know, these basic questions? Well, I think probably the main reason is that I think we've been particularly uh, in the Uniting Church, but I think it, it is a broader phenomenon. But I think we've been it's been particularly acute in the Uniting Church, and that is we've been focused so much on the question of how we read the Bible. And uh, and often for good reason, you know. Yes, the hermeneutics is a <laughs> is essential. We have to be alert to how we are reading any document, and of all the assumptions and prejudices that we bring to our, any reading exercise. So, absolutely essential that we we have that question before us. But my concern is that we've actually in in so focusing on the how of reading, we've actually forgotten 
why we're reading it and or even what is it that we're reading so uh because i think there's a whole lot of i mean what what i mean why would anybody go to this collection of literature for what purposes uh, like you know you've got to have some very particular reasons to read this ancient literature um very little of which is the meaning of which is at all self-evident and nor is the use of it self-evident in this this culture that is so removed from the or seemingly at the first um first impression so removed from our concern so um and that's when i think we have to ask well what is the bible and why are we reading it and that i think then shapes how we read it and it shapes the expectations that we have of what we will what we will gain from reading it mm. Um, and I mean, so there's the, that's one, one reason that the, the, the dominance of the how do we read question. Um, but by asking the what question, what is the Bible, I think is also an important uh, correction. Oh, no, it's not, this is self not a correction, but it's by attending to that question, we have to challenge some of the answers that are given to it. The, the Bible is not simply a flat text. It's not a uh, something that's fallen out of the sky. It's not something that's simply a divine oracle to us. It's it's much more complex than that in terms of its content, um, the the diversities of theologies that are present, rubbing up against each other, challenging each other. And I think when we see the Bible as in the complexity that it actually is, it makes it far more interesting. And it, it complicates, but in a very enriching way, it complicates our reasons for reading it and what our expectations of reading it will be. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really good um, and really does help, you know, especially when it is just so easily appealed to in that flat text. Uh, and as you talk about in the book, also flattened in a different way sometimes where, you know, to go the other way is always like the Bible is a solely a metaphorical. Yeah, problem. yeah. Um, so, yes, but so going back and asking the why, um, yeah, it, this, it kind of corrects at the beginning a lot of other paths that come off. Yeah. So um, the creeds, the creeds make an appearance in the basis of union, and, and you kind of talk about the, the much maligned creeds. Uh, but you also say, is it is? I guess we'll ask the question: Is the the generation or the generations being produced by post Christendom and, and post modernity are they the best thing that's happened to the creeds uh, <laughs> since the early councils? <laughs> well, they could be. They could be. <laughs> Um, because being post-Christian and breaks our familiarity, I think, with with those the affirmations of the creed and our practices of using them. So yes, but I, I think perhaps um, the more, and I, I do say this in the commentary, I, I think there is a generational issue here as well. Mm. That, uh, and it's one that I think is particularly real in the Uniting Church context, given the Uniting Church demographics. That's um, We've people who've been enculturated into modernity will come to the creeds with an innate suspicion towards the past, and that's you know, that's part of my intellectual cultural forming that the past the onus is on the past to prove its worth to us, uh, and and the, the bar is really really high. So I think we've um, therefore come to distrust anything that can come from the past, let alone the creeds, and compounded, of course, by the fact that um, another element of being enculturated into modernity is that no one else tells me what to believe. And the, the creeds are this, these statements 
of the past inviting us at the very least to, I don't think they're telling us, but they're inviting us to actually think about things outside our own frameworks. So I think getting into post, post-modernism um, and post-Christendom are very good things for our opening up possibilities for re-engaging the creeds and the wisdom of the past and the kind of conceptualities that they invite us to imagine. Mm. Yeah, I thought that was a really great chapter, so I encourage people to get the book for that because, uh, yes, it is exciting to think about the way that, yeah, there is a different attitude to that we receive, everything is received, uh, yeah. and that, thus yeah. there's less natural suspicion of a particular thing we've received. Sure, sure. Um, so uh, in, in, in another way, another thing that's been handed down to us comes in, in paragraph 10, kind of this the deposit of the faith that comes from Wesley and the Reformers, a, a toolkit of documents to, and, and you point this out, not to just lead us to those documents to sit in them, but to encourage the church to continue to consider Jesus Christ, the grace of God and the vitality of Scripture to understanding those. Now, but what I was considering is as, as the UCA grows in its commitment to being a multicultural church, uh, and continues to live into its covenant with Congress. I guess what scope is there within the basin, basis to, to broaden this deposit, this uh, toolkit, uh, to better reflect now the wider heritage that is shaping the future of the church? Uh, you know, does it, does it, is this something that needs to be incorporated into the basis or can it come you know, alongside the basis in other documents such as the preamble, which, which does acknowledge the uh, you know, the stories and the spirituality of the first peoples in the guiding of uh, matters of faith. You know, what's your thought there on as, as we broaden and consider this kind of maybe somewhat narrow um, uh, deposit? Sure. Um, a really important question. And uh, I suppose um, structurally they can't, nothing, we can't incorporate anything new into the basis uh, unless the church had a different view about what the basis was. But at the moment, that's not an option to us. But I think, yes, we, we are called to, um, in the next paragraph of the basis, to confess, to be, always be ready to confess the Lord in fresh words and deeds. So I think things like the preamble are very good examples. That is a very good example of the kind of act of witness that the basis of union calls us to, and which in, in its own way is continuous with the kind of witness confessions of faith that are referred to um, in paragraph 10. So, uh, yes, and as you would, I think, or some, some, and some of your viewers would be aware that you know, the Assembly is actually pursuing that possibility at the moment of thinking about a, a book of, of confessions, thinking about what confessions of faith uh, might we appropriate from other parts of the church um, and might we even um, generate new confessions of faith Ourselves. And, and to some extent already referred to that little statement, um, we are a pilgrim people, which in, is an instance already of that. Um, the preamble is an instance of it. I think um, the covenanting statement of the Uniting Church, the covenant between the Uniting Church and the um, Uniting Aboriginal and Islander Christian Congress is another confession of sorts, um, as is our statement about being a multicultural community. So I think we're constantly doing it. We perhaps don't always apply the language of confession or witness, confessional witness to faith to those sorts of documents. But I think it, it's a relevant and appropriate thing to do. That's good. Thanks for that. Uh, so our last question specifically on the basis is uh, about your, you know, your commentary on ordained ministry, which I found really, really fascinating. Uh, so you write, 
Ordained ministers are oriented to ensuring the church maintains the faith and life which called Christianity into being in the first place. Uh, it is about ensuring that the church keeps its witness to Christ and participation in his mission at the heart of why it exists. Uh, and in light of this, you lay out a kind of fourfold responsibility to be shared by ordained ministers. Now, in the book before this one, uh, A Genuinely Theological Church, which we also talked about, and people can float back there and check that out, uh, you put some thought into, into theological education and the nature of leadership in this kind of post-Christendom, post-modern context. So I was wondering how you feel like you know, these two areas that you've been thinking about, ordained ministry and the, and the pre preparation for it, uh, and beyond just ordained ministry, but that's staying there for now, um, how these two kind of fit together, your, your kind of hope or uh, your hope, you know, for ordained ministry and the, the preparation for it based mm -hmm. on this call of what is actually the point of ordained ministers? Yeah, well... Um... Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good question. And um, I think perhaps where I want to start is actually saying one of the things I think we have to try and move beyond in the Uniting Church is this contrast that is often drawn between ordained and lay ministry and playing them off one against the other. Now, you know, there are good reasons for doing that because um, ordinate, ordained ministers and the notion of ordained ministry can accrue to itself a level of status and power and influence that actually have nothing to do with the actual vocation of ordained ministers. And, and I think the church, we, we, we know that. No, that's not news to anybody. Uh, and we have to be con continually alert to that possibility. But I don't think that, that that problem is not necessarily remedied simply by trading lay and ordained ministry off against one another. Um, there can be plenty of abuses of lay ministers and lay, or sorry, plenty of abuse by lay ministers uh, in the church, lay people. Um, so, you know, it doesn't, the distribution of power or the, the misuse of power does not neatly divide between lay and ordain. So I think we need to try and open up a different kind of conversation. Uh, in many ways, I, I think my answer to the question um, comes back to why do we bother to tell the story of Jesus? And, and I think we have, I would understand you, the calling of ordained ministers in this time and place is to be, have a very particular focus on that and keeping the church aware of this fundamental story and of all that that story calls us to in terms of the, um, the commitments, the practices of the church. Um, so, yes, I, and, and that there I, th I think also clearly involves people being uh, adequately trained to do that and to be continually reminded of why they're being trained theologically. Why do we train ordained ministers theologically? I think it's to um, it basically engraft them into that particular story or engraft us into that story. Well, thank you for that. That's great. Uh, so we're now going to, uh, this is the second time this segment has shown up on Love, Rinse, Repeat. Uh, people who've listened to the Emmy Kegler episode will have already heard it. We're playing pairings, um, insert music to be found uh so pairings is uh jeff i'm going to ask you you know what pairs well with your book uh and i've got three categories so if someone's sitting down to read your book or they're planning to they've got an evening set aside uh what's a meal a song and then after they've read your book another book that would pair well 
with in his own strange way. Okay, well, the meal. Um, my colleague, friend and neighbour, um, John Flett, uh, is a great one for Korean food. Mm -hmm. And he recently took my wife and me, or uh, well, he and his wife took us to uh, a Korean restaurant in Melbourne. And although I've got fairly broad culinary tastes, I've, Korean food is actually new to me. So it's actually quite strange. And I had the strange experience of actually sitting in a, a Korean restaurant where neither the, the aromas or the practices of a Korean meal were familiar to me. So I think any meal and any cuisine and any dining practice that takes us out of the ordinary and where it begins to feel strange to us, that's a good pairing for the book. Perfect. I love that. That's really good. There you go. Gives you an excuse to go out and share, uh, you know, sh share a nice meal somewhere potentially. We didn't actually take the commentary on the basis with us, though. <laughs> well, that's fair. I mean, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, the author is somewhat exempt. You know, they, they can make their own way in this. Um, that's great. Uh, Jeff, do you have anything you want to uh, plug or promote? Obviously, people are going to go and buy the book. And review I haven't it. asked about you haven't, but I haven't answered about the song. Oh, of course, yes, the song and the other book, the other two categories. I got so I got so entranced by the idea of going to. A, so the song actually and it, i'm mindful of this because we've sung it a couple of times at my local church and i don't know whether you had in mind a, a christian song or some other song but seeing i'm totally disengaged from popular culture i better stick to i'm a bit safer um so it's a song called Our God Who Weeps, and it's written by a member of the, the congregation, uh, Kate Skull, so plug for Kate's music, and you can go onto Google and you could actually track this down, Our God Who Weeps. Um, and I'll, I'll just, can I read to you the, mm. the lines of the chorus? So see yes. our God with the tear-streaked face, with words that heal and arms that embrace. See him now with his nail-scarred hands, your kingdom come, Lord, the promised land. And a God with a tear straight, a tear street face is a strange view of God for most of the popular conceptions of God. Mm. And here we are again, as you've said, in Holy Week, and we're coming up to Good Friday, and nothing is stranger in the Christian message than the crucifixion. Mm. So that song is one that I would, for its for focusing on the strangeness of this tear street. God, um, that would be my choice of song to pair with the book. That's a good one. That's a good one. I like that. And the book, the other book. Yep. Uh, it's a toss up, but I'll say I'll, I'll say both. Okay. Um, one would be um, Rowan Williams' book, um, "Being Christian," subtitle mm -hmm. which is "Baptism Bible Eucharist and Prayer." Lovely little book that addresses in many ways many of the same issues that the Basis of Union addresses, but obviously does so in a very different style from a very different tradition. Um, and it um, goes into all of those issues which are dealt with in, well, three of them are dealt with in specifically in the Basis of Union, mm -hmm. but in William's book he goes into them in much more detail. But again, in a sort of um, with an intention of helping Christian people reflect on them. Yeah. The other book would be... Christ the Key by Catherine Tanner, mm. in which she looks at what does the Christian theological vision look like when Christ 
is seriously treated as the key to all the fundamental theological questions. And there's a parallel there, I think, between what the basis is trying to do uh, for the church, for an understanding of the church, and what Catherine Tanner is trying to do with the whole framework of Christian theology with Christ being the key to it. Mm, good options. All right, people have... People have it. There are your pairings for when you have, uh, have bought and are reading in his own strange way. Thanks, Jeff, for okay. playing pairings. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so um, obviously people are going to buy the book, uh, and if you buy it, put a review up on wherever you bought it from, Amazon or whatever, Goodreads, I don't know, those things out there. Uh, what else? What, uh, how else can people connect with you? What else do you want to uh, get people's eyes on? Oh, well, um, I occasionally blog. Um, in fact, right at the moment, there's a series of blogs about this book. So, um, so th the book is Zenizonta, Strange Things. That's X-E-N-I-Z-O-N-T-A. And uh, so there's a little series about the book with excerpts from it. And um, that's probably enough, I think, to point people to at the moment. Sounds good. I'll put the, uh, the links to those excerpts in the, uh, in the show thank notes. You. People can check them out. Well, uh, Jeff, thank you very much for, for joining us again on Love, Rinse, Repeat. My pleasure. Thank you for having me and um, thank you for all the probing and provocative questions. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay. I'll see you later. Okay. Good.